Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Family is nuts. Everyone knows this. The Alexanders, though, they really took the cake, as we learned in the last episode. Stewart's family had whittled down to just him and his little brother when he took over the sausage factory in 1993. By that point, Stewart's violence and rage were well known amongst those around him. And with his father gone, it seemed things could only get worse. And then, the last piece of the puzzle, Stanley, died under suspicious circumstances on some train tracks near the factory. This left Stewart on his own, the king with his castle. What could go wrong? From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Garibich, and this is The Sausage King. Episode 3, There is no business like sausage business. By the time 1995 rolled around, Stewart had been in charge of the family business for a couple of years. And at first, things were going well. Their customers were satisfied, the business was rolling smoothly, and the product was still lining shelves of local grocery stores, filling the walk-in fridges of restaurants, and being slapped on the grill by families all around the East Bay. One such customer is an East Bay staple, a small hot dog chain based in Berkeley. So uh, I, I've been asking everybody this because, you know, it, it doesn't exist anymore, but have you ever tried the Santos Linguisa sausage? I have not. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Right. But totally the guy who owns Top Dog... Oh, that's my cousin. Is, is he? Yeah. <laughs> he testified. Wait, I'm sorry. You're joking. No. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. That is so interesting. Holy crap. The, the okay. guy who owns Top Dog. You're, you're talking about Dick Rebin, right? You know, if I had my case file with me, yeah. I would... Uh, okay, I have to call them after this. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. He testified for Stewie. Really? Yeah. They were friends? Yeah. I'm floored. Okay, I thought I knew everything. I did not. That is... Okay, I have to write this down. The Top Dog guy... Um, came and testified for him. That's crazy. He's saying the, you know, Santos Linguisa is the best sausage in the entire Bay Area. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so he's your cousin? That. Yeah, that's my cousin. This is from my interview with Judge Vernon Nakahara, who presided over Stewart's trial. We met him in episode one. He warned me not to watch the footage of the murder, but described what he could remember. Vernon was one of the first people I interviewed for this story, and it was while speaking with him that I made this discovery. Dick Riemann, the owner of Top Dog, is in fact my cousin. He is married to my cousin Irene, 
the granddaughter of my great-great Aunt Vera. I had no idea he was involved in the case until Vernon mentioned this towards the end of our interview. Since they had a working relationship, Dick seemed like the perfect person to ask about how Stuart handled his business. So I made the call. Well, tell her I say hi. I really, she really wants to do something for Thanksgiving this year, so I hope we can make it work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's been too long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you mind if I ask if you could just say your name and what your proprietor of the Top Dog franchise? Oh, go ahead. Could you say your That's name? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm Dick Riemann. I am the owner, founder, target of uh, Top Dog, which started here in Berkeley in 1966. We're sitting in the back office of Top Dog, right off of Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. The small, dimly lit space is cluttered with papers, filing cabinets, and other memorabilia from their decades-old business, as well as the remnants of what the building used to be. Dick and his wife, my cousin Irene's, first home. In the cramped space, he motioned to where they used to have a Murphy bed, what used to be a closet, all the things that have changed over the last 60 years. Tonight I'm taking Rini out. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Dick is still going strong at 85 and comes back here to look at invoices and make calls while the smell of sizzling hot dogs and sausages waft in from the grill on the other side of the wall. On the other side is the front of the business itself, a narrow entryway where customers file in for the markedly inexpensive and satisfying meals. After time on the griddle, the links are slapped onto buns and can be dressed up with relish, onion, sauerkraut, and mustard from stations by the door. Top Dog has been a Berkeley mainstay for years, and Dick has rotated all kinds of varieties of sausage and hot dogs often on his menu. And you... We want to buy as much of a product as we can that we can safely store and therefore to keep the price down. And especially when you're shipping it in from the East Coast. And uh, so that taught us to look at our lineup of sausages and to cull the least productive, even though we favored them personally and otherwise. Uh, we had a turkey sausage. I like the idea of offering a beef, lamb, pork, uh, chicken, turkey. I would, uh, I'd probably have offered a turtle sausage if I could have found a good one or even thought of it but uh, the uh, the turkey sausage which I thought was very good or I wouldn't have brought it on in the first place uh, my god I, I came close to getting a death threat from, <laughs> from one guy once we discontinued it and boy was he on my back about what did you do that for and bladder, bladder? But the Santos factory's linguisa sausage was something else. Dick fell in love with it almost immediately. Since it no longer exists, 
I figured I would ask him, a veritable expert, what set it apart from other sausages. I know that that sharp, salty, whiny uh, flavor that was part of the, that was the linguisa experience was, had always appealed to me. Uh, even when I was younger, where I would run into a linguisa very seldom. Uh, I think maybe once or twice when I was when I was a kid back east. But I came to find out that there are rather quiet, unobtrusive enclaves of Portuguese people that ring, that dot the Bay Area from San Francisco to San Jose and down the East Bay. And, uh, and they support a surprising number of Portuguese uh, or linguista manufacturers. Yeah, yeah. So then what yeah. made Santos special or what made it stand out? It's taste. It, um, um, I'll keep my arm off the desk. Um, some, some, somehow I ran into a Santos linguista. And having had the idea to add linguisa to the lineup. And I had gone from one manufacturer to another, from SF to San Jose, up to Berkeley, Oakland. And uh, I tried every one of them. And there was one. I mean, it stood out heads and shoulders above all the rest. I am so sad that uh, that things happened the way they did, such that that Santos, that sainted manufacturer, uh, who traced back to, I believe, in 1923, when typically the grandfather started the business, and then the son or the daughter even. Uh, picked up on it and for having worked in it and continued it forward and uh, until uh, the um, Stuart Alexander and his mom um, you know uh, were the the backbone of the operation it was a very small operation I think it was a two car garage modified down in San Leandro, and a number of small manufacturers uh, uh, of sausage uh, operated out of San Leandro. Um, It may have been for the rent, lower rent, uh, tax reasons, bureaucracy uh, being lighter than in the bigger cities. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, Santos... Uh, became the our choice, and we opened a, a top dog in Montclair district of Oakland, and I remember being behind the counter, and the doors. We were inside a, a, a small mall, and the doors to the parking lot were always open. 
and our inner doors were generally open. And more than once, I'd be behind the counter and I could smell it. I smelled the aroma of a Santos Linguisa delivery being made. And sure enough, shortly thereafter, in the door, up the steps and through the doors and through our doorway would come a guy with a big hank of uh, linguises over his shoulder. And, uh, uh, and the garlicky smell, uh, tempered by wine and smoked with oaken wood, was so pronounced and so demanding of your attention, uh, it was not to be uh, ignored. And I was so happy with that product and so proud of it. And frankly, I don't want to give him kudos where they weren't, weren't earned, but I tell you that um, Stuart Alexander, the, uh, <laughs> the hit piece of this, this interview, um, he was the same way. He was thrilled with that product. He was proud of it. And uh, more than once, he delivered the product himself. He and his mom, Santos, um, they had only two products they made. One was the linguisa, and the other was a, a pork shoulder butt marinated. I don't think it was smoked. And it was used by Portuguese people uh, for a traditional recipe. And that, those were the only two things they made. But they made them well. And, uh, well, I, I, goodness, I could go on and on and on about the history. Yeah. Dick was a bit reluctant to be interviewed for this project at first. So loyal was he to the product he used to buy from Stewart. When asked about his interactions with Stewart himself, Dick seemed to just appreciate the man's hard work and good business. And for him, it was that simple. Well, he would say with a smile and, uh, you know, the fact that uh, he was very, I would say, uh, realistically generous with us uh, as regards pricing, he knew that we revered his sausage. Uh, when I say we, I, mainly me and, and Rini, my wife, uh, she was also a great fan, but uh, you know, he, he'd generally show up smiling and uh, happy to pr give us what he had made. And, and I always thought that, uh, you know, we, we, we both appreciated a unique product that had a fabulous uh, uh, history and taste. And uh, that it, it just outshone the competition. And if the competition wanted to continue making their types of or their varieties of linguisa, more to you, you know, go ahead and do it, but uh, 
you ain't getting my business. I'm I'm stuck on this, and uh, so I I never even looked for another linguist uh, to sample, never. And you said he uh he had like a lot of a lot of energy. Like, you mean he was very you know he had a lot of enthusiasm for the business, or how would you describe him? Yeah, he had enthusiasm, devotion. Uh, mind you, I wasn't at his shoulder watching him work. Uh, I don't know, but that he had maybe one and other employee uh, helping him and his mother put this product out. And uh, he he must have, I, I'm assuming. But uh, I never saw him in... Uh, uh, down, you know, he, he always seemed uh, plenty of zip, and uh, he was a a bit of a bull of a man. He, you know, he was uh, medium height and uh, well proportioned. He was uh, he'd have made a good linebacker, maybe. <laughs> Dick was as surprised as anyone that Stewart wound up becoming a murderer. He didn't think he was capable of it, and was just as surprised that Stewart was in dispute with the inspectors at all. In all the years that Top Dog bought and sold Santos Linguisa sausages, there was never any question that it was a quality product. But someone else I spoke with, close to the Santos business, literally and figuratively, told a different story. Nick Nicosia, I'm the owner of Nicosia's Gourmet Products. Nick is another sausage maker based in San Leandro. He and I met at the factory he operates out of, just down the road from where Santos used to be. Nick greeted me wearing a hard hat and a white lab coat, under which he was rocking a black Harley t-shirt. He's shorter than I expected, a jovial man, and loves talking about sausage. I was hoping for a tour, but they were too busy ramping up for the holiday season. Once Thanksgiving rolls around, then Christmas, they're churning out sausage faster than they get the orders in, he said. So we stuck to the conference room at the front. The wood table, surrounded by chairs under fluorescent lights, did nothing to hint at the building's real purpose. Sausages. But there was a slight smell, which I thought might have been sausage at first. But Nick quickly explained that he and his employees had just wrapped up the, quote, 60th anniversary of his 15th birthday, as he called it or the celebration of his 75th birthday with pizza. The pizza smell lingered in the small room. Well, I'm from the East Coast originally. So you can get an Italian sausage and pepper and onion sandwich anywhere. Try and find one here. I mean, they're they're few and far between. My first shop was right around the corner from us, and that was in 1980. Built the plant in 82, opened it. February of 83. And at that time, I made Sicilian sausage only. When he first opened his operation, he met Stewart's father, Tweety, in a very neighborly fashion. And one day he comes over, he knocks on the door and uh, introduced himself. And he said, I understand you make sausage. I said, I do. And he said, well, uh, I make linguisa. And I said, what is that? And he said, you're kidding me. Nick had never heard of linguisa before he moved to San Leandro. He explained to me that it's not a commonly found sausage product outside of California. And uh, he said, well, I ran out of casings. 
And he said, is there any chance I can buy some from you? And what size do you use? And I said, well, we probably use the same size, which turned out to be so. And uh, I said, uh, just, you know, tell my guys how much you need. He says, well, how much? I said, just take what you need. I said, you know, what do you mean how much? I said, you know, take whatever you need, and then when your shipment comes in, just bring it back. So he brought it back about a week later, and uh, when he came, he brought me some linguisa. Well, I had a test kitchen and a lab because I did some of my own lab testing for fat analysis and other things, uh, which was very unusual back in those days. So anyways, he came over, and we started talking about various things. And uh, he, he brought the casing back, and he brought me some linguisa. So I gave him some Italian sausage. <laughs> and that's how we got to know each other. And he just, uh, you know, aside from th- that aspect of the business we and enjoying each other's product, uh, we never really got into, you know, personal things. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was he, just a very pleasant man, very nice. And uh, I always enjoyed his company when he came over. We'd have a uh, little little something to eat over in the kitchen and a glass of wine <laughs> and uh, and enjoyed it. Nick's operation was very different from the Santos factory, he told me. Because he made sausage that was raw, it was in a different class and suspected different requirements than the linguisa, which is smoked. The smoking process is the origin of how Stewart's troubles started. So what class was the linguisa? Yeah. What he would, what linguisa would be at that time, nobody was really fully cooking it. Mm-hmm. So it was considered heat treated, not fully cooked, or not what they call NRT, not ready to eat, and not shelf stable. So which means it had to be refrigerated. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem he had was well what. Everybody was looking at with that particular product. Temperature-wise, the main thing they were concerned with is trichinosis. And what is that? Trichinosis is a type of worm. It's found almost entirely in pork. You could find it in, in beer, uh, bears, because they're out in the wild. Uh, but it, it's primarily in, in, in pork. Um, decades and decades ago, uh, we had probably the highest rate of trichinosis in the world in this country. And I'm going back probably to Second World War. But uh, at, at that point, that's when they started placing restrictions on it as far as you know, processing it because other countries didn't want to accept pork from us. Nick explained that there are various ways to kill the parasite in pork products, primarily by cooking it at a certain temperature for a certain number of minutes. But he found out that Stuart wasn't sticking to the necessary rules to do this, the new regulations that had come out about temperature requirements. He learned this the one and only time he met Stewart, he told me, at a campaign event outside a local restaurant when Stewart ran for mayor of San Leandro. That's a story we'll be talking about more in the next episode. He, uh, he was introduced to me, or a friend of mine introduced me to him, and said, you know, Nick makes sausage also, and indicated that uh, I told him I made mainly raw product. Uh, I did make one fresh product at that time, which again was the, the smoked Sicilian chicken sausage. And again, you know, there I, I cooked it to 165 degrees. And uh, he told me he was following, you know, the same system as his father, 
which I believe his father was going to 138 degrees, which is enough to, your concern, again, was to kill trichinosis. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, uh, 138 degrees, I think it was somewhere, somewhere between three and six minutes. Okay. At 144 degrees, it's instantly. But regulations had changed since his father first began making the sausages. 138 degrees wasn't high enough anymore by the new standards. And Stewart didn't want to adapt. You had to conform to the law the way it was being changed, which makes perfect sense, you know, because it's safety-oriented. But the thing is, is that uh, he could have gone to certified pork, which meant that it was already free of trichinosis. That would give him more leeway with temperatures uh, and time and temperature. He could have changed, he could have added, at that point, he changed his label and added safe handling. That negates... If he had these options, why why didn't he, he? He was offered all of this. They they went in there and tried to help him and train him and even brought a um, uh, a former uh, USDA inspector who was a consultant in to help him with it. And finally, he said, "Nope, I'm not doing any of it." Why? If he had these options, like I said, he resisted everything from what I understand. Mm. And like I said, friends of his that I know have told me, yeah, that's the way he was. He resisted everything. Nick knows a lot of these details because he shared an inspector with Stewart's factory, Tom Quadros, with the USDA. Nick interacted with Tom on more than one occasion. I had met Tom. Tough guy, um, but uh, again, very, very fair. My friend who owned Moniz uh, had some had a uh, small fire in a, not in the production area, but another area where uh, materials were stored. And Tom went in there and just bent over backwards working extra time to help him straighten it all out. Uh, like I said, John didn't read and write. His secretary was wonderful. She did most of the work, but in, you have to process a label through the federal government for every product you make. And it has to go in and be approved. Well, he sat down with his, uh, Tom sat down with his inspector uh, or rather with his uh, secretary and showed her how to do these labels for these products. And just an immense help to him. Yeah, yeah, he was a great guy. He was a great guy. And, uh, you know, but again, they're tough. I've, I've been doing this for close to 40 years now, and my relationship with inspectors has been, in most cases, I'd say 99, 98% just wonderful working relationships. Nick says his good relationship with inspectors comes partly from his own dedication to stay on top of regulations in the industry, which he says are always changing. Not everyone in this business is as up-to-date on things as Nick, which can make things difficult sometimes. There's no sense arguing. You're not going to win that, especially if, you know, it's based on what the regulations stipulate. And the thing is, is there are changes. I, get, I got three changes this morning. They don't apply to us, but I, I still look at them. I don't know anybody that does that, you know. Stewart wasn't alone in not wanting to conform to new changes. According to Nick, it's a common trait in their line of business. But Stewart was the only one who took it too far. And you said that you'd always had such a positive relationship with the inspectors, right? Oh, yeah. I've never had a problem with them. Okay. Do yeah. you... 
believe at all that maybe they were taking it a bit too far with him? You know, I think I think everybody right at that time period, because Hassab had just been, you know, in effect for sure for about two or three years. Nick is referring to Hazard Analysis Critical Control Point, or HACCP, a system of checks and balances that food manufacturers have to follow in order to ensure the safety of their product. The process was adopted by the USDA after a 1993 E. coli outbreak. It was caused by undercooked beef patties, traced back to the -the jack-in-the-box fast food chain. The outbreak killed four children and made 700 people ill across multiple states. In response, Jack-in-the-box implemented HACCP, becoming the first fast food company in the world to do so. The USDA fully adopted this regulation in 1996. Nick thinks that this was likely the main source of contention between Stewart and the inspectors, that he wasn't following proper temperature procedures, and he hadn't brought the factory up to date in accordance with the new regulations. Uh, Everybody was under a lot of pressure to make sure that everybody was conforming to the regulations, and as indicated how he resisted everything, I wonder if he had any kind of an hassle plan at all, because you have to have it in writing. It has to be in writing, and basically what what that means is it's hazard analysis uh, critical control points. What that basically means is you are going to do a hazard or an analysis of all hazards in your plant that could affect your product. Mm -hmm. Then you are going to arrive at, at, at critical points that need controlling. Now... Some may require more than others. If you have variance in in temperature, uh, you have to consider that a control point Mm -hmm. and how you're going to adjust for it. Are you you going to use colder meat? Are you going to increase the uh, or decrease the temperature of the room? Our rooms in there are in the 40 degree range. Mm -hmm. The freezer's 10 below zero, you know. Uh, It's, and then as I mentioned, when I, we take temperature product while I'm producing it. It has to be taken, and another individual has to supervise the person taking it. And they both have to, in writing, verify that that was the temperature. So basically, it was a lot of new responsibility. Yeah. And- now, if you if you are the sole person, uh, you're you're doing all the grinding, the cutting, the spicing. You have zero help then naturally you couldn't have uh, an, an observer watching you, and they, they permit that. And then they have various, uh, I guess, they're not really allowances, but adjustments for very, very tiny plants, you know, that are limited as far as finances and, and naturally staffing is concerned. The Santos operation was definitely on the small side, with just a handful of people working there at a time. Nick guesses that Stewart didn't have the capacity to follow all these rules, but also wasn't willing to work with the inspectors to come up with any suitable solutions. He lamented that several times during our conversation, that Stewart wasn't willing to do the work with them and had instead taken the stubborn and eventually fatal way out. After the Santos factory was shuttered, Nick was convinced by some locals to try recreating the linguisa so beloved by the town, even if it wasn't his forte. 
Okay, so what what was your recipe? Excuse me? What was your recipe? Excuse me? Oh, I'm sorry. Am I not <laughs> supposed to ask? <laughs> okay, okay. Not the recipe, but what what are the key ingredients that are supposed to be in like a traditional linguisa? Well, Nick wouldn't share much with me, except for a few key things, like garlic and wine. But it's become clear that the mythology behind the story extends to the sausage as well. Nick was able to create a linguisa, even if it wasn't quite the same as Santos. People seemed to like it. He said some of his employees said it reminded them more of chorizo. Still delicious, but not quite the same. After a while, he stopped making the linguisa. He said it was too difficult to make along with all his raw products. The process for both is very different and time-consuming. But by this point in my interview process, I'd heard rumors that someone connected to the family had gotten their hands on the original recipe. Rumors only, so far, but with some promising leads. I knew I had to find it if it still truly existed, and see if I could try it. Next time on The Sausage King, while I conduct my search for the elusive linguisa, we'll hear more next episode about Stuart's increasingly erratic behavior and his unconventional mayoral campaign. He would show up to council meetings, and um, because he would have, he had run-ins with uh, building inspectors, police department, anybody of authority, he would get in a run-in. When no one in local government took what he felt was adequate action, he made a decision. If he couldn't beat them, why not join them? His impression was if you were in power, um, because he felt that the mayor of the city basically would you know, like his dad had more influence than anybody else. The Sausage King is researched, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich. Matt Pittman, Don Bastida, and Eric Brooks are our producers. With production, sound design, and editing by Matt Pittman. Cover art created by Dre Irabaran. Social media by Greg Wong. Jennifer Selig is brand manager for KCBS Radio. The Sausage King is a production of Odyssey. Listen and subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.